Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back once again to Grape Juice Wine and Jazz. Entering into now our fourth episode on the second series. Um, I've just come back from a brisk bike ride around our beautiful town of St Andrews on this lovely August day, on the last day of August, in fact, of 2021. How scary is that? And um, back for an extremely interesting episode. Well, it's always extremely interesting, but this time, not so much interesting as whack. Um, not so much an area that people don't usually drink, but that is underrated. More that an area I have absolutely no idea about is not very reliable and you barely find in this country. Today we are exploring, I'm just going to jump right into it with no, um, you know, preamble or theatricals. We're doing Russia today. Um, Russia, yeah. Uh, initially, this episode was designed so that I could just basically talk about the Russian romantic composers. Um, but doing research on the actual bottle which will be featured today, I've discovered that we may be in for more than just a little musical review today. Um, let me give you a bit of background on how I stumbled across a bottle of Russian sparkling wine. Um, as you can imagine, red wines, or indeed many white wines, are not made in Russia because of the climate. and. The cool climate that lends itself very well to making of sparkling wine is probably one of the few things that they can actually get away with down there. Um, uh, and even then, most of the Russian wine regions are actually very, very close to the border or onto the Black Sea, uh, bordering places such as Georgia and Crimea. Georgia, of course, is very important in the story because um, it's fated to be the uh, the home of wine, where it all started, with famous greats such as Riccatitelli. Um, and actually, Riccatitelli from Georgia, or indeed the grape probably grown in Russia, I, I think Georgia was part of the Soviet Union, etc., um, was what they drunk in the Kremlin uh, while the Iron Curtain was still up. Um, so very, uh, there is sort of winemaking tradition in that area, but not necessarily Russia proper, despite how fucking big it is. Um, so, basically, uh, the International Wine Challenge is quite a famous body organization that sends round wines to everyone that you basically get to try, and it's quite fun. Um, they sent us lots of boxes. Um, obviously, the, the, the sparkling wines are not something that they can just sort of put into little bottles and then post into a nice little, um lovely little box, you know, obviously not. Um, so we got boxes from everywhere, France, Spain, Portugal, you know, America, New Zealand, everywhere you can think of. And then a huge 12-bottle box, and what on earth can that be? 12 bottles of Russian sparkling wine. Um, some of the labels were very, very interestingly Russian with, uh, you know, the gorgeous script on them, and they had an extremely sort of Russian feel to them, uh, perhaps in a very stereotypical way, you know, a sort of orthodox, you know, vibe. Um, uh, so basically, uh, for St. Andrew's Wine Company, and you can go and look this video up on uh, the Facebook or the YouTube page for St. Andrew's Wine Company, we tried one of the wines. It was a rosé by someone called Victor Drovigny, um, and it was absolutely awful. I'm so sorry to say. Um, and the really sad thing about trying that wine was that... I had no hopes for it. You should. You have to go in with no expectations, you know, no preconceptions of what about about what about what might happen or what it might taste like. But unfortunately, I absolutely expected it to taste like that, and that was the saddest thing. It was basically a rosy wine that, on the nose, smelt like rhubarb, um, uh, and then on the palate, it had an initial hit of kind of 
this awfully artificially fruity sugar and then completely hollow after that. I mean, the the mid palate, you know, barely had a chance to begin before uh, it had completely hollowed out. I mean, the arse just completely fell out of it. And that is a thing that can happen with a lot of sparkling wines. It basically felt like they'd taken two sachets, one smaller one saying rhubarb strawberry flavor and, and chucked it into the vat. And then they had taken a whole heap of caster sugar and just chucked it in. That's what it tastes like. And another unfortunate reality is that's probably how they made it. Um, so that was not great. It was a rosé. I wanted it to be good. It wasn't awful. It was just, who would drink that? You know, it wasn't like, you know, I don't want to absolutely trash a wine because someone is making it. It's got someone's name on it. But unfortunately, it just was like, oh, God, the wine is absolutely awful. I know. Let's just chuck a whole heap of sugar in it. I mean, I know that was the method in champagne for decades until the British came along and said, no, make your wines dry. But unfortunately, there was there was nothing for the sugar to support. It was just sugar, which is a shame. And the bubbles disappeared very quickly. But anyway, um, we couldn't just leave 11 of those bottles sitting around and not try them. So uh, basically, Peter, my boss, and I lottery picked two, one each, to take home. Peter took his home and reported back that it was actually quite drinkable. I took my home, and I was stupidly about to pick another one, um, the Victor Dravigny, in fact, because I liked the label better, because I'm a hoe. Um, uh, but he said, no, 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 you've got to take that one home. So I thought, okay, all right. It's been in the fridge now for a good couple of months. Whenever that video was posted, it's been in there that long, and I haven't tried it yet. Uh, and because I wanted something pleasurable to drink. Now, back on to why I think that we may be in for a little more with this wine. Um, doing my research, I found out that this winery is actually a cut above the rest. Um, I'm tasting today uh, a wine from Abrao Durso. That's how it's written out in English, um, Abrao Durso. So the wine I've got is called Abrao Durso Brut d'Or. It's a Blanc de Blanc, so it's 100% Chardonnay, 12.5%, which is very similar to Champagne. Um, and it's grown in the Krasnodal region, which is uh, very near Georgia, um, bordering the Black Sea, I believe, on the edge of the Black Sea. So I thought, who on earth is this Abro Durso winery? I look it up, and it's actually pretty damn high class. So I'm just going to completely plagiarize and read you um, a little history of Abro Durso from this website called uh, Wayback Machine um, Web Archive. Um, and it seems to have a lot of history about uh, the Russian wine country. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I've just got a whole kind of article here on Abra Durso, and it's actually giving me a, a link to their website as well, which is pretty damn cool. Um, so I'm just going to read you that, um, because I really, really didn't expect it. If, if I were to pick a Russian winery that would probably be reliable, historical, etc., perhaps give me something a little bit more classy, then um, this would probably be it. So I think I've struck gold with Abra Durso. So, um, Wayback Machine says, Abradurso Winery is located between Anapa and Novorossiysk. Sorry, I really want to pronounce this correctly. Novorossiysk, near the Black Sea coast. It was developed in 1870 by decree of Emperor Alexander II. Look at that. It's probably a predecessor, a forerunner even. So, already this has a really long history. On land found by... Ag agronomist Fyodor Giduk in a small rugged valley about 20 kilometers north of Novorossiysk. Abra Durso is named after two streams, the Abra that forms a small natural lake, the largest in North Caucasus, in front of the winery, and the Durso, which falls to the Black Sea two kilometers distance and 84 meters below. The first grapes planted included Riesling, Portuguese, Aligote, Sauvignon, Separavi, and Muscat. In 1896, Prince Lev Golitsyn, the godfather of modern Russian winemaking, arrived with French specialists to make sparkling wines. An extensive series of tunnels and caverns were dug into the hills beside the winery, and I've seen pictures, they do have these very Champenois-type, sort of Roman, London underground-type cellars. Prince Golitsyn established a school to train young Russian winemakers, and it was these young winemakers that were to continue the Abrodurso winemaking tradition after the revolution, when the winery became a Vinzovko, a Vinzovko's, a state wine farm. Golitsyn died in 1913 and was buried at his other sparkling winery, Novisiet at Sudak on the Crimean Peninsula. 
Oh my god. So, not only is this thing established in 1870, but it was established by decree of an imperial Romanov, and also um, basically cultivated and perpetuated by the father, quote-unquote, of modern Russian winemaking. What better winery could we be choosing today? So, Abradurso Winery is now a very large complex that stretches from the main building that front on the lake through an extent, this is definitely translated from Russian, through an extensive complex of tunnels and gaves. In recent years, Abradurso was acquired by entrepreneur Boris Titov. Mr. Titov has made a large investment to renovate the production facilities, acquire modern equipment, bring in French consultants, update labels and develop a marketing and sales program. He has also established an interesting museum and tour program and renovated a nearby hotel to create the comfortable and luxurious Imperial. Hervé Justin, a well-known... Uh, oh no, Hervé Justin, he would be French. <laughs> a well-known oenologist from Champagne consults with Abradurso. My God. The winery has few vineyards, but purchases grapes from neighboring vineyards to produce about 2 million bottles per year of Méthode Champenoise, uh, you know, the classic champagne method wines. Grapes used are largely white varieties that include Aligoté, Pinot Blanc, Sauve, and Chardonnay. An additional 14 million or so bottles are produced using the Reservoir Charmin method from imported wine material, in inverted commas, from several countries, including South Africa. That sounds a bit dodgy, I have to say. I wonder what quote-unquote wine material is. We'll see. Some of the classic wines are aged at least three years to earn the aged Vidrgenoyer label. Look for Abradurso aged for a classic brut. Well, that's what we've got. Or Jubilee, Jubileinaya, if you wish a sweeter classic sparkling wine. Abradurso's Velvet Season is a red sparkling wine. Wow. Okay, so... This is pretty damn cool. Russia, as you may well know, already has a connection with Champagne because uh, I'm not sure, actually, I'm not quite sure when Cristal was. Let me just look that up. Um, basically, Cristal Champagne, Louis Rodor's famous Champagne, which is, you know, possibly even more prestigious than Dom Perignon. Uh... Yes, this is Alexander II again. Um, 1876 Cristal was created, and this was 1870 that we were talking about, I believe. So Alexander II basically cultivated the Russian wine tradition, along with Prince Gitsin, or whatever his name was, um, because Cristal was made exclusively for the Russian desires until <clears throat> the revolution, uh, when it became public. Oh, well, not so much public at 220 pounds for the current vintage, but anyway, um, Russia has a closer connection with champagne than you might think. Um, so even before, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be petty, but one may assume that um, Alexander II set up Abradurso and the wines were so awful that he decided to get Louis Rodor to make him one. <laughs> I'm sure that's not quite the case, but anyway, um, obviously it's not going to be Cristal level, my God, and perhaps not even Rodor level, but it's going to be interesting. Um, the other thing that I saw there, which is quite good, is that I think their, their sort of brute Meton Champenoise wines are aged for three years. So I think there may be a bit of lees aging on this, which is going to be even more fun, because otherwise it would just be a sort of generic, you know, apple-y, prosecco-y, uh, well, hoping it's that good, you know, kind of wine. Um, so lees aging, one of my favorite things in the world that you can do to a sparkling wine. So that is really, really fun um, and extremely encouraging. Um, so already this wine has history. It has a seal of royal approval. It has communication and um, consultancy from high up people in Champagne. And it has uh, careful and considered winemaking that takes time. Um, uh, you know, and that's probably why the wine materials are needed, so they can make money on the side. Anyway, uh, we're certainly sampling one of the good traditional wines for which they are famous. Um, and it would seem from that article, and actually other research that I've been doing, that Abradurso is pretty much the winery in Russia. And that makes me very, very happy, and it means we have absolutely hit jackpot. And I'm very excited to taste it. Um, the other theme that we are exploring in this program today is, of course, the initial thing that I was going to go for, which is uh, the Russian Romantic Composers. And I've done a bit of research here because I wanted to uh, do a little bit of a panoply, a bit of a kaleidoscope um, of uh, composers. Uh, and we're going to be focusing on the late 19th century, which is, of course, sort of the golden age. 
Um, so for a bit of context, we're going to be exploring uh, Alexander Borodin, uh, Cesar Sui, Alexander Glatsunov, and of course, um, Baitur Tchaikovsky, um, the most famous. But of course, as is our want on Grape Juice, we're not going to be playing any of the, the, you know, the, the club bangers that you may know from Tchaikovsky's repertoire. We're going to be playing something a little bit different, still well known, absolutely heartbreakingly beautiful, but off the beaten track slightly. Um, so, first of all, let's talk about the kind of context of Russian Romanticism. Um, let's talk about the Five, also, according to Wikipedia, known as the Mighty Handful, the Mighty Five, and the New Russian School. Um, so, basically, this is a group of five composers formed in 1856, and they kind of collaborated until about 1870, incidentally, when this winery was, uh, was formed, um, to basically try and come up with, cultivate... Um, promote a Russian style of classical music. And within that group were Alexander Borodin, uh, who you heard uh, earlier in the program, and César Sui, and some very, very interesting characters. So our first installment in that kind of, um, in that vein, was uh, Alexander Borodin, who you heard uh, coming in there, um, and that was from his famous uh, opera Prince Igor, which was... Uh, Actually, he started in 1869, um, but wasn't performed until 1890 because it was, in fact, unfinished. Um, but it was finished and edited with the help of other composers by uh, another composer that we will be exploring uh, later on in the program. So what you heard there was perhaps one of the famous excerpts, perhaps the most famous excerpt from Prince Igor, which is the second Polovtsian dance, uh, which is from Act Two. Um, uh, I did cut it off just before the operatics there, but I thought it would be, you know, a bit, a bit more of an easy start without the, the screeching women that, just, that comes just after that piece. Um, and the thing that strikes me about that piece and a lot of the other pieces that I'm going to be playing uh, and what, what it captures the kind of Russianness of the Romantic period or the, roma uh, or the specific Russians of the run Russianness of the Russian Romantics is this kind of fairy tale vibe. Um, we'll come on to Tchaikovsky later, but he was actually criticized for not having uh, enough Russianness in his music. But if you think of his famous operas such as Swan Lake and The Nutcracker, nothing could be more fairy tale-y than that. Um, so I just think the sort of sweet, sort of woodwind flute-type vibe and the, the gentle strings, it's very sort of storybook. It's very kind of Grimm's fairy tales. It's very sort of um, fantasy land. And I think that is the kind of overwhelming, perhaps slightly stereotypical theme that you get from uh, Russian romantic classical music um, or romantic orchestral music. Um, and I think that the pieces I've chosen today kind of show that theme and um, prove that this is kind of perhaps the most recognizable trope of um, the of what the five were trying to do, this kind of, this sort of slightly folkloric fairy tale vibe that you don't quite get in Western music. Um, and I think that's the main theme that we can explore. Um, now we're actually going to move on to uh, another composer. Um, but it's going to be, as I was saying, someone who was kind of slightly off the beaten track in terms of the theme that I was talking about. I'm not actually going to play... Uh, an excerpt from the Nutcracker or the Swan Lake because I just think that's too obvious. Um, but I would, I would actually like to do something that demonstrates not Tchaikovsky's conf uh, conform conformation. Bloody hell! I'm so sorry. Um, conformation to this kind of Russian fairy tale vibe, but actually his kind of deviation from it. Um, so we're going to explore Tchaikovsky now, um, and one of his most heartbreakingly beautiful pieces, which, as I want to do with the show, I only discovered this morning. <clears throat> so Tchaikovsky is extremely famous, obviously, for many, many seminal pieces, and is the most famous Russian composer, apart from uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff, for example. But in the, in the 19th century, certainly, Tchaikovsky is the dominant kind of musical export or famous figure. Um, he was often criticized by people such as the Five, the Mighty Five, for not being Russian enough. They thought his music was too Western, too influenced by Western ideas. This actually coincides with a very interesting period in the 19th century where a lot of countries, especially in, the uh, in Eastern Europe, Eastern and Central Europe, are sort of trying to reassert their identities in the, the, the kind of 
in the in the in the shadow of Western empires and such. So Russia, ever since Peter the Great, who uh, ruled until 1725, basically went through this Westernization period. He um, Peter the Great built Saint Petersburg, named after himself, um, to look like a European city. You know the canals of Venice. The, you know the great facades of the Italian palazzos, etc., etc., um, and many many people felt that Russia kind of lost its identity because, uh, you know, the Russian military started to adopt Western-style uniforms, etc. That was perpetuated by Alexander the Great, who ruled from, uh, a oh bloody hell, eighteen o one, and by the time you get to Alexander the Second. Um, who, you know, established uh, our winery. Um, I think the five was basically established in order to sort of reassert Russianness. And perhaps they saw Tchaikovsky's Western-ish type style as perhaps not compatible with that. Um, alongside that kind of abuse, um, Tchaikovsky had a very, very difficult life. Um, many long relationships that he had ended abruptly. He had a repressed homosexuality and many bouts of depression um, and is often cited as one of the quote-unquote saddest um, composers, but that's nothing new for romantic composers. Um, and I think that kind of suffering is unfortunately what gives rise to or engenders such beautiful piece of, pieces of music, um, one of which we're about to hear now. So as I said, I'm going to play a piece of music that I, I think not, not necessarily sort of demonstrates the westernness of Tchaikovsky, although it, it is very re reminiscent of perhaps, um, I'm not going to play you a Chopin piece now, but it is kind of reminiscent of something like Liszt or Chopin, yeah, a sort of kind of ballady, chromatic, slow-paced um, orchestral work. Um, that is based less on the woodwind instruments that you heard in Borodin and more on piano and violin, etc. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm gonna. I just want to show something that is, you know, perhaps you can see where the five or our Russian critics are coming from when they say he's not Russian enough. But almost, I want to prove that it doesn't matter because it's so beautiful anyway. So what I'm gonna play is um, "None But the Lonely Hearts," which is a uh, not an incredibly well-known piece, um, but it comes from six romances that uh, Tchaikovsky composed actually in 1869, very, very early on in his career. Um, and the last one is Opus 29, and the last one, number six, is this None But The Lonely Heart. Um, and it's extremely, extremely moving and pretty damn depressing. Um, so I'm going to play a version to you by Peter Brenner, um, uh, you know, sort of, he's leading the orchestra, I believe. Um, or indeed playing the violin, I'm not quite sure which, um, from an Axos album. And uh, there are many, many versions that I toyed with for choosing today. Some of them start out with the piano and then go into the solo violin. Some of them start with the flute and then go into full violin. But I chose one today that starts with an oboe, so you can kind of see that woodwind connection uh, with Borodin. Um, and then goes into this solo violin piece, which is perhaps more Western, more sort of quartetti and Western European. So perhaps showing two sides of what I'm talking about here. I hope you enjoyed this piece very much. It is extremely emotional. Sit back um, with a glass of whatever you're having and let it wash over you because it truly is remarkable. And I shall be back afterwards to taste Abra Durso's Brut d'Or Blanc de Blanc from the Krasnodar region of Russia.
I would encourage you all to go to Spotify or to Apple Music or whatever music platform you have and go through every version of that song. Just look up Number the Lonely Hearts, Tchaikovsky. Um, because there are so many different versions and find the one that works for you because that's such an emotional piece. Um, and it really, it's a side of Tchaikovsky that I actually had no idea about. And it's really, really early on in his career. The one thing I didn't mention and why I interestingly put this next to Tchaikovsky, uh, put Tchaikovsky next to Borodin like this, um, rather than, you know, with his, in his later career, which would make more sense, um, is because, as I said, Prince Igor, the opera that Borodin wrote, was started in 1869. This was actually written in 1869, as I say. So they're actually um, not necessarily the same pieces are from exactly the same year, but the, the composers are operating in exactly the same period. And basically, I, I am doing the pieces in chronological order today, but the four composers I'm talking about operated within exactly the same period, i.e. sort of the 18... 1860s to the early the early 20th century um, or indeed the 1890s should they have not made it that far and now let's get on to the tasting section uh, after all that terrible sadness um, the bottle is in front of me and I'm obsessed so um, it's a rather sort of thick bodied thin necked uh, long necked uh, Prosecco uh, style of bottle um, it's got uh, Abrodurso, but in a, in a kind of native script, um, or actually, you know, in a sort of anglicized native script. So it's not quite English, but it's not quite Russian either. Um, you know, that you get that kind of intermediate script in Chinese and Japanese as well. Um, and it's just a big old gold diamond, Brut d'Or, you know, Gordon. Yeah, that, that's something that they like to use in champagne because the idea of gold, you know, equals, you know, fruity, tasty silky smooth you know it just it implies tastiness um the color of the champagne etc it says metal classique blanc de blanc at 2017 um so uh, i'm assuming this is this is actually has been aged for three years on the lease because i don't think we will be getting an old one so i think this has just been released having been aged on the lease and that is extremely exciting um, on the on the neck foil, on the little band at the bottom of the neck foil, it's got 150, which I'm assuming uh, is indicating that, um, well, duh, of course they're celebrating their 150-year anniversary, aren't they? Because uh, it was started in 1870, and it's it was 2020. Oh, that's so cool. So um, this is actually their 150-year anniversary release as well. How fun is that? Um also on the net floor, there was a lot on this bottle. Also on the, the band of the net floor, it says Mito Classique, and then below that in Russian, um, Abrodurso in the, oh my god, I'm so sorry, how unprofessional. Um, and then the Abrodurso logo on the back, and then Blanc de Blanc. Um, on the top, you've got the same. And on the back, we have a plethora of very, very interesting objects. First of all, we have the, um, the kind of information for illiterates like me, basically telling you the region, the producer, the grape. Uh, and the percentage, um, courtesy of the International Wine Challenge. And then you've got the Abradurso label, which is entirely in Russian. Um, it's a good thing, because it does, they're not trying to anglicize this in any way. They're saying this is a Russian wine for Russian people, F.U. Um, number 266, whatever that means in the International Wine Challenge. And then we have the rather gorgeous export label with a barcode, um, which is which is pretty good. Um, it's it's sort of purpley, bluey, with a kind of couple of silver stripes on it, and it's got the rush the the double-headed Russian eagle down there. Um, I will of course post a picture of this on the Instagram. Um, but so far, it's looking classy. I mean, you know, they they're not you know they're not using uh, they still got the plastic tear-off ribbon thing, but you know, sort of a lot of whoa. They've got a nice cage on the cork here. They're obviously not on the cheap. These are not cheap wines, obviously. I'm just trying to, I was trying to find out how much they cost, but this is obviously, they're not messing around with these, with their Meto Classique wines. So on the cage, it's a sort of beige caramel color and it's got Meto Classique, um, uh, the Russian national double-headed eagle again, and 1870. Ooh, let's undo it. Um, so as I say, this has been in the fridge for a couple of months. I'm not sure how much that good that has done it, actually. I probably should have cellared it, but that just shows you how disrespectful I was being. Um, but it's open now, and there's nothing we can do. Um, the cork is rather lovely. It's very sort of... 
It's very, it's kind of very kind of sort of, this is actual bits of cork that have been rammed together. There's no sort of fiddly faddling here. There's no sort of artificials or anything. Again, a very good sign. So I'm just going to turn that round. I'm very excited for this, folks. I, th I really think this is going to be good. I'm, I'm actually really excited. Um, so that's uh, the, the cork is gorgeous. Getting a nice little bit of pop, pop, pop off the neck. Um, without further ado, we're going to pour this into the glass and see what the colour's like as a kind of initial impression of, um, God, what's it called again? Abradurso's Brut d'Or. I'm putting this in the big regular wine glass, of course. Um, the champagne glasses are good for tasting, but I do want to give the nose a proper go in the Italis glasses. So I've poured about, you know, 100 mil or something. And the colour is a rather nice sort of straw, very pale lemon. Um, uh, the bubbles are a nice kind of... Actually, they're rather fine. The bubbles are really rather fine, really rather classy. Um, the wine is is pretty damn clear as well, which is another good sign. And it's just it's just like pouring a glass of rather good sparkling wine. I'm really excited about the fact that it doesn't have that awful, you know, mucus green color that a lot of Prosecco has. Um, it actually has a nice sort of lemony, strawy, perhaps, you know, on the very, very pale side of gold tint, which is really, really cool. Um, and I'm glad about that. Um, and it, it looks like a champagne. Um, whether it smells or tastes like one is an entirely different matter. But we are about to uh, disabuse any notions um, here very, very soon. So already the color is great. It looks extremely appealing in the glass. Um, it is perhaps probably, I would imagine, considering the tools that they're using down in the Krasnodar region, probably the best expression that they can come to as to a sort of brute door type color. Um, not that brute door means that it has to be golden in color, just it sort of, it looks appealing, you know, it doesn't look like, you know, it doesn't look like a fairy liquid mixed with, uh, mixed with dishwater. Um, <laughs> um, okay, I'm gonna be quiet now and smell Imperial Russia. Um, let you know what's happening. My right nostril's a bit bunged up, but I should be able to get some stuff. Um, so, dipping my nose into Abradursa's Brut Dour Blanc de Blanc, 2017, 150-year release. Um, and let's see what happens. Hmm. It is quite sweet. Hmm, there's an interesting sort of apple ever so slightly sort of musty honey thing going on. Um, a touch of the old chemical whiff, but that's fair enough because it's carbon dioxide um, juice stuck in a bottle for ages. <coughs> I think that actually made me cough, actually, which is a bit... It smells rather pleasant. Um, certainly not offensive. Not like old Victor Dravigny. It's um, it's a, it's a little bit artificial. It's an, it's not sort of. <coughs> it's actually making me cough. That's so funny. <laughs> oh my god. <coughs> the fumes of Imperial Russia. Um, it's actually quite. <coughs> it's quite so sorry. It's quite mildly biscuity. Uh, it's possibly a little bit of honey. Um, possibly a, a kind of bit of green apple. Rather delicate. I'm going to put my nose away a bit so I don't... I just hope I'm not breathing in chlorine or anything and the Russians haven't, you know, put some Novocaine in here. Sorry, bad joke. Um, or maybe it's about being in the fridge too long, I'm not sure, but... It is, it is a rather weak nose, but there is definitely something brute dory there. Um, I'm just going <coughs> to stop giving myself industrial wind and put it in the mouth and hopefully poison myself. Um, but let's see what happens. Hmm. 
that is completely fine. Hmm. Yeah. There is definitely a biscuity lees there. Um. Wow. That's that's very promising. <coughs> oh God. Uh, still in the old asbestos hall, though. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Woohoo! Right. So, critically analyzing it, you get this initial. It's not unpleasant, but there is. It's a. It's. It's not dodgy either. It's. It's just there's something noticeable about it, which. Unfortunately, they just can't help because of the climate. But I would happily drink that, you know. It, <laughs> let me just taste it again, <laughs> just to confirm that. Ugh. Ugh, it doesn't quite have enough. I was going to say I would happily drink that in place of a Prosecco, but... Ooh. Basically, what there is, I'll be quiet now. What there is, is there's a kind of, in, an, uh, the initial whiff, or the initial kind of experience in the palate is extremely delicate, slightly fumy green apples, bit of Sharpie ink. <laughs> and then the green apples become a sort of bit bramley and do settle on either side of the tongue. But then... Um, it's fascinating. Then you get this ever so slightly. It's all very subtle, but it's there. Then you get this honeyed, slightly biscuity, slightly syrupy, rather nice finish, which comes from that Lee's aging. Thank God for the Lee's aging. But the mid palate is just air. It's just hollow. It, the wine itself is not hollow, and it's not nearly as hollow as the other wine. But um, it, it does, and the arse doesn't quite drop out of it. But it's just, the mid palate just completely hollows out and it just feels like I'm, it's just air, you know? It's insane. It's like, it's like pouring water through a kind of sieve of apples. Think of this, it's like, it's like a well. So you've got the, the top layer of a well and it's kind of like a strainer full of green apples. So you pour it through that. And then it's just traveling for miles down this well, and then at the bottom it splats onto some like biscuits and mild honey. You know, it's like woo, like flavor, long, long interval, and then flavor again. So that's basically like the technical analysis of the wine, if you can call that technical. Sorry, uh, Wine Spirit Education Trust. Um, but that's basically what happens here, and that is what happens with sparkling wines when. Um, there's not enough heat, uh, you know. Uh, that's just what happens. It's it's just too. It's just watery and weak. Um, and now I'm at, now I am actually looking at it. Is it is a little bit green in color, but that's fine. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Some champagnes look green, <coughs> Laurent Perrier. Um, but yeah, you could get pissed on that and not really notice it later on, like it's a perfectly acceptable sparkling wine. I'll probably have a glass of it with me, with me salmon fillet tonight, why not? Um, but it does just hollow out in the middle there. Um, I wonder if this is their prestige cuvée, that they surely have one, you know, more expensive than this. I'd be interested to try that, but I'm not sure that even Lee's aging or, you know, maceration, blah, 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 can, uh, can sort of improve that. Um, is it a good alternative to champagne? No. Um, but am I very, very happy about that? Sorry, I sound like Ricky Gervais from The Office. Do we like it, guys? No. Um, what I'm trying to say is you can't compare it because it's a Russian wine, you know. Um, it's not fair to just be like, well, Charles Heidzik does this or Tattinger does this. Like, that's, that's irrelevant, you know. Um, 
it's I'm it's really really good it exceeds expectations even without expectations isolated it's not a bad wine but it's not a good wine either as a wine you know there is there is an initial onslaught as I like to say even if it's extremely subtle as it is in this case there is a finish which I can still kind of taste there is a bit of clinging to the gums but then in the middle it's just air um, but I think that's really, really cool because I didn't expect, I know expectations, blah, 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 but I didn't quite expect Russia to be able to do that. Um, and I think that uh, Alexander II was probably whooping it up with this in the Winter Palace on, you know, on weekends. Um, actually, historians think that it was actually with a bottle of, uh, <laughs> of this that Trotsky got in his ear rather than an ice pick. No, I'm joking. Um... Of course I'm joking, well, uh, um, but this is the thing, it's, it, I'm, I'm actually, I'm quite sorry, I'm trying to be coherent here, but I do think that it is, is actually a quality wine. Well, it's, it's, what matters here is that it's, it's been very considered, and the tradition of the winery obviously helps, but definitely um, thought and care has gone into this wine with the tools that they have down in, down in Krasnodar. And they have produced a perfectly tasty, perfectly drinkable vino. Um, actually, now I'm tasting it again. Maybe it's just my silly cold palate. Um, you know, I have a tiny bit of an allergy because, you know, good old summer. But um, actually, I don't think the mid palate is that hollow. It's certainly, it's certainly, the wine overall is just extremely subtle. But I'm not quite sure if the mid palate hollows out. It definitely dro drops until the finish. But I'm not sure if it's actually quite hollow. Had that with some beluga caviar. <laughs> um, in conclusion, I'm really, really happy that this turned out the way it did. Um, this is clearly what matters is that care and thought went into this wine. They produced something pretty damn good, um, and that makes me happy. Um, and I think that is a huge, huge achievement and something that the world needs to be made aware of. I think that the vast majority of Russian wines, you know, are drunk within Russia and a lot of them aren't exceptional. But I think that Abradurso, with the history it has and with the kind of the name that it's made, has, if not the license, then at least the motivation to make these wines. And I'm glad at least someone is because that, that gives hope. <laughs> with global warming. I mean, I'm not saying, oh, you know, the future of Russian wine, because I'm not sure whether they want to be making much more wine. I'm not sure. What, that's not really part of their culture. They want to be making vodka. Um, but it's it's good that at least something decent is coming out of Russia, because it is actually enjoyable. And the finish is really, really long. Um, and I think that's insane. Um, 2017 is is a quite a cold year around the world anyway, and even though Russia is you know has every type of environment ever, um, it's it's fairly cold down in the Crimea I believe, um, down near the Black Sea because um, you're not quite far south enough I think, um, but it's definitely hotter than you know Petersburg or Yekaterinburg or one of these glamorous places. Um, certainly more so than Vladivostok. Well. I don't know if that's cold run that way in China, but anyway. Um, I'm really, really happy that this is good. I hope I don't get poisoned by it, you know. Um, but I, I think that it's definitely decent, and I'm really, really happy that I had the opportunity to try it. And not only that uh, I picked a banger, or at least the lottery was, you know, ran in my favor when I got this bottle. So, let's, uh, before we move on to our kind of final thoughts, let's move on again with our theme of romantic composers. We're going to now explore César Sui. Um, he does have a, was it César or, actually, we've got a pronunciation here, it's César Cui. César Cui, that's how you say it. Okay, not César Sui. I mean, it is rather a kind of French name, but it's, I believe it's César Cui. Um, so he's a rather, rather interesting character, and as I mentioned, he was one of the five who wanted to promote a kind of Russian type of music. He was also a music uh, critic, um, and, you know, very, very keen on Russianness. Um, but he's rather interesting because he became a, an officer in the Imperial Army, and he actually became a general 
or engineer general. Um, and he wrote a, a number of books, excuse me, according to Wikipedia, on kind of fortifications and um, fortress-like techniques um, when it came to uh, military campaigning. So he's a rather interesting character. There are some quite uh, interesting sort of re uh, realist 19th century paintings of him uh, in his uniform sort of drooped. If you go to the Wikipedia page, you can see them. So he's a rather interesting one. Um, I was going to play one of his 25 preludes, but um, I, I wanted to focus more on the orchestral side of things today. So we're actually going to go for his uh, one of his sort of more violin pizza uh, pieces. Not pizzas, my God. Um, so we're going to go for a Suite Concertante, um, which is his Opus 25, and that was uh, con uh, composed in 1884. Um, we're going for number three here, um, which is a kind of lovely, s slightly wispy orchestral piece. Um, and you will definitely see similarities to Borodin um, in, the, in, uh, in terms of the theme I was mentioning, this kind of sort of fairy tale... Um, folkloric sort of n nature, you know, romantic vibe um, that you get off it. Um, it's very sort of sweet and wispy and um, has, a, has a nice bit of woodwind in there. Um, so if you cast your mind back to um, the, second, uh, the second dance from Act 2 um, from Prince Igor, um, you might see some similarities with this sweet concertante.
back again after that lovely little and very Mighty Five uh, rendition of Russian romantic music. Um, before we move on to our last composer, um, we're just going to, as always, do our little short uh, epilogue to every episode where we kind of sum up our thoughts and say what we think. Um, perhaps the, the, the fact that I haven't poured myself a top-up or another glass of this wine does speak about my personal preference for it. But com- analyzing analyzing it completely iso- in an isolated manner, I have to be you know I have to be impartial. Um, obviously, the f- whether you like like a wine or not is extremely extremely important, and it is the first cornerstone. You can't you don't have to like like a wine just because it's expensive, um, just because it's well known. Um, uh, as many Russians might not necessarily like Abradurso just because it's presumably a little more expensive and indeed well-known. Um, personally, it's not for me, but objectively, it's it's cool. It's great. It's fine. It's doing its thing. Um, it's, it's riding on its reputation. It's definitely about where it's from. Um, there's only so far you can go with terroir, obviously, in terms of this wine. Um, but I think, obviously, the history and the... Uh, the, the history and the tradition with this wine is what's most important and fascinating. At the end of the day, what has been produced is a perfectly passable good wine. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing excellent about it either. But bearing in mind, as I've said, the Russian climate and attitude to wine and not perhaps um, great knowledge, um, it's amazing. Um, what I what what fascinates me most and what I'm enjoying the most about this wine and this winery is the care and attention that has gone into it, um, the correspondence with the the Champenois and the the desire uh, through you know even just the building of these vast wine cabs to create something uniquely Russian, um, and to to sort of create something sparkling. Uh, a sparkling wine that the Russians can drink, made by the Russians for the Russians, you know, um, and I appreciate that, and it's definitely part um, of the the Russianness um, that was, or, or the obsession with Russianness that was going on in the nineteenth century, or not necessarily obsession with Russianness, but just nationalism, um, or indeed just patriotism, because nationalism is quite sort of um, politically charged. Um, but I always like to make a connection at the end uh, of the this second series of great views between the music and the the wine and I think they are extremely similar um, just as uh, Abradurso was established in an effort to kind of um, reassert kind of indigenous Russianness self-sufficiency not relying on the West although it does rely on the rest in terms of its kind of making a champagne type wine but trying to reassert uh, trying not to sort of export import their identity um ever since the kind of legacy of peter the great um so the the mighty five i'm going to call them from now on and many of the romantic posers uh, composers in the mid to late 19th century in russia were trying to do exactly the same thing so in many in many ways um this wine or this winery and the romantic composers that we have um discovered today apart from Tchaikovsky are part of the same movement they're actually part of the same mindset and um, part of the same motive which is to uh, reassert a Russian identity um, and to kind of uh, promote indigenous Russianness Um, as we know from history uh, that kind of patriotism sort of took a bit, a bit more of a, a sort of cleansing than promoting term, where um, a lot of ethnic minorities and religious minorities were put under something called Russification, um, which was uh, basically not being allowed to practice your religion and being forced to wear Russian clothes, act in a Russian way, etc., etc. Um, so obviously there are limits to this kind of national feeling, and unfortunately, when it, it always turns nasty in the end. But I would say that um, Russian sparkling wine um, and the music of the romantic composers from the late 19th century are perhaps the best products of that national feeling um, and why uh, what makes the 19th century so fascinating in Russia. Um, they're all, I never really think of these connections at the beginning, but there, there always seems to be one. And I'm really, really glad we found one. Um, 
I'm now going to put a stopper on this wine. Uh, I'm going to have a glass this evening and then see what happens over the next few days, whether it dies, whether it maybe even develops. Um, and perhaps wait a moment until I post this episode and uh, the Instagram post to see if in fact anything happens and I can report back. Not expecting anything, but then again, expectations are the thief of joy. Um, I think that's a bastardization of a, of a phrase a journalist said. Um, but I want to see what happens with this one and I'm intrigued by it. Um, so thank you so much for listening to this episode, everyone. I've incredibly much enjoyed it, um, if not only to play some of my favorite music ever. And I'm glad that I've actually discovered something that is enjoyable and drinkable from the the far, far east. Um, a country that we don't know about over here that is very stereotyped um, and extremely insular and um, stubborn. Um, and I'm glad that I can actually get some joy um, and sharing something with uh, Russian people in a way that most people aren't able to in the West. Uh, and on that note, we shall serenade this episode out with um, our last installment of Russian Romanticism. And this time we're going to play Alexander Glatsunov. Um, as I mentioned, Alexander Glasunov uh, at the beginning was uh, not part of the Mighty Five, but he was a disciple of them. He was one of the composers who finished um, Prince Igor, Borodin's opera, um, after he died in the 1880s, um, so that it could be performed initially in 1890. Um, and also he arranged, uh, he did orchestral arrangements and um, facilitated the performance of um, God, what was it again? Chiza Kui's um, music as well. Um, so in fact, he was a big follower, a big fan of the Mighty Five. And I think he was perhaps part of this sort of younger revival generation that not only supported and was inspired by the Mighty Five, but also was really keen for their music to be performed and become well known. So I think Alexander Glatunov is not only a, you know, a composer in his own right in this Russian romantic tradition, but he's also a kind of impresario and promoter and sort of agent for the style so i'd say that alexander gladsunov is definitely kind of uh yeah the the three the theatrical agent for um this sort of traditional russian uh, mighty five um romantic music and that's why he's a rather rather interesting composer um i've put his music last just because it comes last uh, chronologically i've chosen um the oriental rhapsody and I've chosen the first part of uh, that, uh, which is the Andante, which I think is the most beautiful. Um, so uh, I hope you enjoy that very much. I shall be posting this episode in due course. Um, please remember to follow the Instagram and Facebook pages. That's Grape Juice Wine and Jazz with an N and no apostrophe or one word. And I shall see you very, very soon for the next installment. <laughs>